This is a message called Amazing Grace. Here is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. We then, as workers together with Him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Do not, says the Apostle Paul, receive the grace of God in vain. Now, it doesn't say to take it in vain or to understand it in vain. It says to receive it in vain. And there's a reason for that. And one of the main reasons is, is that grace is the way to salvation. However, we cannot assume that grace is unconditional. To think that it is, is to receive it in vain. Grace is extended by God for all, but not all receive it. But those who do receive it, says the Scripture, He gives the blessing, the honor, the right to become children of God, and grace extends further into their lives. But grace isn't something that's unconditional as in, well, I can do whatever I want and God will be gracious with me. I can be saved and live any way I want and God's grace will cover it because, you know, where sin increased, the grace increased all the more. (laughs) Paul also says, shall we sin more that grace may increase more? And he says, God forbid. It is to take the grace of God in vain to think you can do what you want because you're covered by grace. That is not the purpose of grace. The purpose of grace, again, is to lead us to salvation. So don't receive it in vain. Paul even says it in that first verse we just read. He pleads with the church at Corinth as he does with us today not to receive it in vain. He says also, in an acceptable time I've heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. That day of salvation is the day that God's grace becomes amazing. And he also says that now is the right time. Now is that day of salvation come forth. Before Christ, that day of salvation was ahead. Now it's with us. There will come a time when that day will end and the acceptable time of the Lord when the kingdom of God is at hand will end. Therefore grace, again, is not unconditional. We are in our Sunday night small group going through something called the class meeting. Not that you need to know the name of it. It, As a matter of fact, that I told you the name would probably give you the same response that I was given to the book when we were asked by our cluster to look at it as a possible thing to do. And my answer was class meeting. Hmm, school, okay, no. It's much more than that. I don't want to go to class. (laughs) I don't know about meetings. I've had enough meetings. 
So two words that had bad connotations. The only good word in the title was the. <laughs> the class meeting. But when you put it all together, it has a whole different connotation of something that has long since been um, almost extinct in our United Methodist Church and is only being revived in certain circles in different ways. But he said this quote, and, and it begins to talk about grace and the need for it. He says, One of the greatest challenges that American Christianity faces is that salvation seems unnecessary to many Americans who feel that they are their own source of their own life and their own security. And that is a problem. And you'll see a lot of people say, I gotta pull myself up by my bootstraps. It's if it's up to be if it's to be, it's up to me. It's all about I've got to do it myself. Be responsible. But there is nothing about the fact that there are certain things that you and I can do nothing about. One of those is to redeem ourselves. We cannot save ourselves from the wrath of God. Would be nice. Martin Luther said this, the founder of uh, the Lutheran Church, should one imagine he is able to do anything good of his own strength, he does no less than make Christ the Lord a liar. Not good. Not good. But it's true. We need grace. We need it. But we don't always realize the depth of the need. And so in that class meeting book, he puts it very clearly. And this is one of my favorite things he said in the whole book. He said, we are addicted to sin. Try as hard as we might, we return to sin repeatedly. We struggle to break destructive cycles. But too often return to them even when we know they are damaging to us and to others. While expressed in different ways, the consequences are the same. Sin has power over us. It is in control and we are not. Whether or not we want to think we're self-sufficient or that we got our own security and we can be responsible, the fact is we can't beat this sin. We are in a, what they call a pickle. <laughs> and I don't mean in a jar. I mean we are canned. <laughs> oh, a can. We are sent to go to the can. You know what I mean? The lifetime can. That's what I mean by prison, by jail, a cell, no way out, don't pass go, don't collect happiness. Wow. Abandon hope all who enter here type pickle. <laughs> but we don't see it that way. We think, and here's why. And, and I, I, I tell you this only because it's true and because you might not have thought of this. It, it, we say, kind of like what uh, Eve said to Adam, take a bite, I didn't die. Oh, right. That's what we say, isn't it? Well, uh, I made sin, but I didn't die today. <laughs> it's not about today, because when the day comes and you have to reconcile all this stuff before God, either you're reconciled to Christ Jesus or you're reconciled to the sin that ran your life. One, but we, you know, here's what we do. We say, the one's not going to hurt. Not today. But tomorrow it might. And, and in the future, they all run together until you have a pattern that says just one, just one, just one, just one, until you got a million of them. And finally, you look back and go, "Hey, I really made a mess of things, but just one didn't hurt." Oh, when you add that one to a hundred. Let me ask you a question: 
does just one mean to you that just one is the limit? No. It means just one more. <laughs> it doesn't mean I'm just going to have one. Because most people say just one won't hurt. Have already had one. They've already had one. One won't hurt unless it's hurt. But if you already had one, then you're not going to just have one. You're going to have just one more. This is what sin does. It makes you think, well, I'm just going to have one. You've already had one. You may have had a thousand already. You're not going to just have one. You're going to have one additional. And this is how the devil gets in our head and our mind. And sin begins to play with our thinking to think that we're okay. We can control it. I'm just going to have one. One what? Whatever it is that hangs you up in your walk of faith or lack of. Some people it can be substances, it can be telling the truth or not, it can be being honest on taxes, it can be all sorts, just one time, you know, I'll just, you know. But guess what? Some people get caught on just one. Some do. And they go, man, I can't believe I'm in jail. I only did it one time. Just once. Well, just once, the Bible says, make you guilty for all of them. But that's the cycle we get into and it causes such damage to our lives. But here's the worst part. It creates a mindset. We start thinking that we have the responsibility to choose what's okay and not okay. And we minimize our errors. But if somebody else messes up, ooh, I can't believe you did that. But me, it was justified. And I only did it once. I only did it once. That's right. I was thinking clear. You weren't. And so we begin to have double standards in our lives. This is what's funny about that. We think, well, it won't hurt because I'm under grace. Because one won't hurt because if one would hurt, then it would kill me, but it won't. So therefore there's grace extended to me. For the one. This is taking God's grace in vain. This is saying, God, I know what your word said, and I know what you want for me to live a holy, righteous life, but this time I'm going to do it my way. But God, I'm going to do it one time, and after that, I'll be under grace. Do we live under grace, or do we live under the power of sin? According to the guy who wrote the book, the class meeting, we are under addiction to sin. We are stuck in its cycles, and the worst part is we are powerless to get out of it. But we don't know it that because we think, well, I'll quit anytime I want to. I'll change and not do it anymore. Try. Try not to do it anymore. You'll come back because it has its tentacles, its claws. Whatever you want to say, it's talons, it's steely grip wrapped around you because you can't pry it off. It has locked itself onto you like a leech you don't know is there and it's sucking the life out of you, but it's doing it slow. And you think it's okay to say just one is okay. Nowhere in Scripture does it go, okay, God, one sin's okay, the rest are not. 
It doesn't say that. I can't find it. I looked. I was really trying to use that for justification one day. And I said, God, just show me we're just one. Well, I found it. Oh, I found it. It wasn't pretty. Maybe you remember the king was told to kill everything. Kill all the livestock. Don't take anything from that camp. Destroy it all. And the king, you remember who it is? King Saul. Comes before, who is it? Anybody know? Samuel. Samuel says, King, did you wipe them out? He says, we killed them all. We killed them all. We did what God said. We annihilated the enemy. We didn't take any captives. Nothing. And I'm good with God. And Samuel says, this funniest line in the scripture. What's this sound of sheep bleeding I hear in my ear? Oh, Samuel's old. We just took one. (laughs) We just kept one. And he says, oh really? Oh, just the best ones. Actually, we kept the best ones. Just all the good ones. We didn't want to waste the good livestock. Because that would be foolish. We wanted to keep the good ones for God. Oh yeah, you kept them for God. God said wipe them out. He didn't want them. <laughs> you kept them for it. <laughs> he didn't want them. Yeah, you kept them for it. What he didn't want. Oh, just just once I did it, you know. Yeah, but what about those other goods? Well, it was just the choicest goods. But God doesn't want them. We do. We're not doing it for God. Don't ever think just one is for God. That's the trick of the enemy. The sin that lies within us so ready to take advantage. In doing so, we do something that I did for a long time. It's called assuming grace. Now you say, what do you mean by assuming grace? I told this story a while ago. It bears repeating. Uh, A year and a half ago now, been a while. When I was at work, I was turning my paperwork in late. It was due every month on the 5th to Office of Oak Rehab. That's the one who pays for rivers for what I do. And so they like to have their paperwork so they can get it done and pay us. Thanks, but after a while, we started having our monthly meetings on like the 8th and the 9th. <coughs> and we'd all just turn our paperwork in there. And there was nobody saying, oh, you should have had it on the 5th. There's no checks and balances, so I said, oh, okay, I'm just turning on the 8th. Well, one day, the meeting was on the 10th, and I didn't have it all done, and I said, well, I don't have it done. They said, and here's what they said at the Office of Oak Rehab to me. It's okay. Grace! Thank you! So I don't have to have it until the 10th, is what I said. I'm assuming now that I'm under grace. Because one time they said it was okay. So I'm taking this as carte blanche. Every time now, the 10th is all right. So the following month, it's the 15th, and I said, I'm sorry, I said I'd have it here on time. It's okay. As long as you get it by the end of the month. I went, hmm, end of the month. So that gives me 26, almost 26 days extra every month of grace. How far out can I stretch this? This is what sin does. You get a little, you take more. You keep stepping over the boundaries. Worse and worse, and my mindset was set. And by the 20th of the following month, I still hadn't got it done. 
Finally got it done on that day. Turned it in the next month on the 10th. I'm sorry, on the 11th. I brought in some of the paperwork for the month before and they're looking at it. And this is what they said. Hmm. Uh, I see some clients here. You don't have so-and-so in this list. I said, oh, I, I know. I just got some of them done because I wanted to have some done. You know, I, I know you don't need it right away. She said, you're right, I don't. You hear that? You're right. I don't need it right away. But in that statement, I heard this. But who chooses whether that's right for her to have it late or not? Can she give me grace or am I the one who says, okay, she gets a late? And so this is what I said. And, and you all might remember this story. I said, from now on, from this day forward, I'll be caught up and my paperwork will be on time. I promise. And she said, how do you know? I said, I don't know. She said, you've never been on time. I said, I know. And she said, how do you know? I said, well, there's a plan. There's a... You know the next letter. There's a plan. I walked outside and stood on Broadway. I'm sorry, on 6th Street. Outside of Wilbury. And I said, God, why did I just say that? He said, there is a plan. It's just not yours. He said, you can't assume grace anymore. And expect me to bestow favor on you. I can't do that. I can't bestow favor to someone who's assuming that it's there automatically. It no longer is grace. It's now contract. You change the rules. The fit is what needs done. And so I asked myself, and I felt like this was a real good question. If my supervisor asked me, do I know what day the paperwork's due? I said, well, yeah, the fit. He said, and so what is your reasoning for not doing it on time, which the agency said? And I would have said, well, the office of old rehab said it was okay if I turned it in late. And he would have said to me, Who's your supervisor? The Office of Vote Rehab, are they the ones that set the rules? Or did we set the rules here at Fuller Rivers? If you would have said that, I would have said, you know, I'm not sure, but they said it was okay. And he said, but I'm your supervisor and I never said it was. He would have said that. I promise you, he would have said that. He didn't have the opportunity because I had an in on time from that day forward. And, and the problem is that we assume grace once it's given. <clears throat> like, if you say to your child, it's okay uh, to leave your chair pulled out from under the table. I know you forgot. It's okay. They go, ah, okay means permission. Isn't it true? We take, when someone says, it's alright if you do that, as to say, it's alright if you do it every time. But what they're saying is, it's a forgivable thing. I'll offer you grace because it's alright. But if you keep doing it, it's not going to be alright. To keep doing it is to assume the grace that has not been given, but listen to this, future grace. You're now banking up future grace thinking you've earned it. <laughs> Scripture never says we've earned grace. Grace is not earned. That's to take it in vain once again and to receive it in vain. Assuming grace is to fashion grace so that it fits our purposes rather than God's. 
I can do what I want, I'll be under grace. Rather than God saying grace is to get you back to doing what He wants. I have a question for you, and maybe you can answer better than I did. How long did I assume God would let me get away with late paperwork? Especially when the Holy Spirit came under conviction on my heart. And the question is, did I really get away with it? Or do you think God knew? And do you think the people of the Vogue Rehab really knew that I was turning in late, and they were just being gracious so we could work well together? You know, what I learned that day was I did not include faith with my belief. Grace needs faith. In Ephesians 2 8, we've got it here for you on the screen. It says, I'm sure you've heard this passage, it's for by grace are you saved through faith, and not, not of yourself. It's the gift of God. And the next verse, which I don't have up there, says, Lest anyone should boast that they did it. It's a gift of God. By grace through faith. You can have grace, but you've got to mix it with faith. And what is faith? We talk about, well, that's what you believe. Well, faith is more than that. Ernest J. Bass, who's a great uh, theologian out of Britain, once said it this way, and I've never found a better definition of faith. Faith is my response, or your response, to God's personal revelation of Himself to you in Jesus Christ. It's your response to God showing Himself that He's real in Jesus. Faith is a response. Faith isn't going, yeah, I understand. It's doing something about it. Faith is a verb. We say, oh, I have faith. No, you don't have faith. You can faith it. You're faithing. But you don't have faith. You are living out faithfulness by faithing through life. It's not faith, I believe, therefore I have faith. Faith is active. It does something. And so, I didn't mix faith with grace. All I had was grace that I would get another favor the following month and say, it's okay. But God wasn't going to let me keep taking advantage of people's grace. And He certainly won't let us continue long term to take advantage of His either. Why? Because grace is meant to establish a faith relationship with Him. That your faith will matter when grace is received. You're saved by grace through faith. Now listen, don't jump ahead and say, well, you know, I believe and therefore I'm saved. It's not what it says. It says I'm not saved by believing, but I am saved by Jesus Christ. And I enter into that relationship by active faith that says that grace extends to me. I'm not saved by believing. I realize I'm saved by believing. Jesus Christ did that on that dark Friday and that first Easter Sunday. Not me. So in other words, grace must be in a relationship with faith to save you. It must be in a relationship with faith to redeem you. And it must be in a relationship with Jesus Christ in faith to heal the relationship between you and God, which is broken. John Wesley said it this way, and others have quoted him, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
Maybe you've heard that before. Grace alone. Ginger saying it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul is winding up this uh, wonderful exhortation, if you will, encouragement. He's already finished the love chapter about fruits. And And then he says something in 2 Corinthians here that really surprised me. Because he's talking about, um, or getting ready to talk about the end times and how people are transformed uh, and the glorious body and the final victory. And just before he says that, he says that Jesus was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. In other words, he was uh, an apostle, but he wasn't with the original twelve. He was added later. Born out of due time is what he means by that. And then in verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I'm not worthy, says he. But, verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly. I had faith and labored. That laboring is faith in action than they all. Yet not I, but by the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. But you understand, Paul says, I am what I am, an apostle because of grace. I, I, can't, I can't tell you how much I love Paul. I, I, it would take a long time for me to convince you this, but I relate to his story. When I'm struggling in faith, I look at the conversion of Saul. Saul becomes Paul. And you say, well, why, Jonathan? Why do you do that? So you say, why, Jonathan? Why do you do that? Why do you do that? Thank you for asking. I'll tell you. Because Saul is going to persecute Christians to bring them back to Jerusalem to be tried with a fair trial and sown, hung, or otherwise executed for being Christian. And he is 100% secure in his conviction that this is the right thing. That he's doing what the law says. The law of the Holy Scriptures called the Old Testament. (laughs) Plus tradition. Plus his understanding. And he's ready to round up. He's already done several. He's going to... He would single-handedly, I promise you, probably wipe out Christianity in that first century. Because he was relentless. He never quit. Had a motor that never stopped. And here he is on the road to Damascus and Jesus comes and shows Himself in the life. And He says, why are you persecuting Me? <laughs> he has the audacity to say, who are you? I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And, and he's going, I'm, uh, you know... Uh, no, it's just these Christians. They, they're not you. I would never persecute you. You're the Son of God. You know, I can see that now. But, you know, I wouldn't do that. I'd just get these people in. That's not you. Of course Jesus said, if you do it for one of the least of these, you come with me, right? Yep. So He says, you're persecuting me. And at that moment, Saul says, uh-oh. Now you say, why is that important? Because he goes to Ananias... Scales fall off his eyes. He confers not with any man, save with Peter. 
and goes off on his own and comes back preaching the Gospel. Um, and writing most of the New Testament with the power of healing and the Holy Spirit on him and authority in his words that still transforms lives today. Now, do you think possibly that this man had a 180? There is no way on earth that you 100% convicted and relentless in what you do are going to stop doing that and go the other way and be 100% convicted the other direction immediately. Mm-hmm. Change for people happens slowly. <laughs> Not like that. He stopped persecuting that moment. He said, I don't know what I'm doing, but it isn't right. <laughs> And Jesus is real. Oh. Uh oh. This is, a, this is the moment when grace hits him and he says, I'm going to change you to the Gentiles and change them from the darkness to the light, and I'm sending you to them. And he's going, um, I'm a Jew. Jews don't associate with Gentiles. That's not what he says. He says, I was glad to receive that ministry from the Father, from Jesus Christ. I was thankful that He sent me to the Gentiles. How could a man who didn't even associate was trying to wind up getting Jews who had become Christian persecuted and killed, all of a sudden go after the people he wouldn't associate with unless grace happened and he was changed? This is why the Paul's conversion so affects me. You good luck going to a therapist's office and you come out 100% different the other direction. You're never going back to that old person. I've never seen that. They say, see you next week. We'll work on it. Here's some homework. Here's something to listen to. Answer these questions. We'll start to think and change it. Paul's thinking change like that. You don't do that. You don't do that to you. Only God can. That's grace. Paul says, I didn't receive that in vain. I am what I am because of grace. Grace is God's change agent. It's what transforms you from what you were to who God asked you to be. Who He's created you to be. And if you don't agree with Him, you assume that you can stay the same, just one more, rather than going through the changes and saying, God, I'm not the person who needs that anymore. I need something fresh and new from Your Holy Spirit. Now, if you get that change, then you're a different person. And when that happens, you go, wow, I'm different. And when God says it's by grace alone, through faith alone, you go, yeah, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I couldn't do that. Paul, for me, is the quintessential turning 180 person. And whenever I have to wonder if God changes lives, if He can bring me out of a dark place, I just read Acts 26. And I'm reminded all over again what Paul went through. Grace makes you who God wants you to be. But you have to verbalize, faithing it into reality and not receive it in vain. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's boasting about his weaknesses. He says this, and I didn't, I wasn't planning on saying this, but Russell and I had a conversation, and I felt God say, "You got to say this." I'm going, 
Well, okay. Paul was boasting on his weaknesses. And he said, three times I asked God to remove this thorn in my flesh. To this day, nobody knows what it is. But I promise you, we all have something that trips us up. We all have this thing that says, oh, just one more time. Or it's not going to hurt anybody. Or whatever we say to justify not being righteous and holy in God's eyes. To, to assume grace is sufficient for the next one more. And so, Paul has that situation. He says, God, I, I'm asking you three times. And, and, and Paul says, he wouldn't do it. Now, do you think Paul's going to go like this? If you're not going to take this away, I'm not going to be an apostle. I'm done. I'm finished. It's all over because you won't do what I ask and I've been faithful. I've been doing the work. Listen, I I no longer persecute those nice people who I used to hate and and I'm working with the people who who I never would have so... you got to give me some grace here, God. Give me some grace. He's assuming that he should get it. And thinking that he has some authority in the relationship with God that God would do something because Paul wants him to when God has said no. On the third time that God says no, Paul asks no more. Because God has said this, My grace is enough. You don't need that taken care of. What you need is my grace. And so Paul says, I will boast in my brokenness. I will boast in my weakness because it reminds me that I rely on the grace of God, not on His healing, but His grace to make my life complete. God's grace is sufficient. Please don't take that and say, well, I don't have to do anything. God's grace is enough. I don't have to work. That's not what He's saying. What He's saying is you're going to have something in your life that God won't remove so it keeps you coming before the throne room in mercy and grace asking for help. Now Paul asked three times and you say, well, you know, why did he ask three times? And I'll tell you why. Because the first time, God is obligated to say no. Oh, you didn't know that, did you? But they believed that at that time. That the first time you ask, you must decline the invitation. So you must ask a second time in a Middle Eastern culture if you really want them to go. If you're really inviting them. The first one is politeness. The second one is a sincere invitation. So, Paul says, the second time, God, if you really want to heal this, and God says no. And Paul says, hmm, you know, God doesn't want to do it. And he really means he doesn't want to do it. And this is his third time asking. And this is the tough one. Maybe he'll do it for me. Because he loves me. And he puts his identity and his value in whether or not God answers the request. And he's assuming that that's going to get God's grace. No, he did not. We did that. Because when God said no, the third time, Paul said, I am content in my weakness. I'm content with God's no. Because my weakness shows His strength. Therefore, says this verse we love to quote, when I am weak, then I am strong. In God's strength in Christ, I can do all things through Him who does give me that strength.